You and I are the Gentile outcast. See, because of our sin, we've been ostracized. We've been cast out because of our guilt and our shame. We too are going back to a broken cistern to draw water and find that it just keeps coming up empty. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today we continue our series, Jesus Is, through the Gospel of John. We hope you enjoy the study of God's Word. Imagine a world with insatiable thirst and yet no untainted water. Just imagine that for a minute. Imagine a world where everyone's thirsty but there's no water that's actually untainted. I did some research this week. Did you know that, this is crazy, 97.3% of the world's water is ocean, and thus it's, it's unfit for drinking. Now, you probably found that out the hard way as you're a little child. Maybe you scooped up some ocean water, thought that would work. Maybe that was last week. I'm not sure your history, but, but you found out it's unfit for drinking. So that leaves 2.7%. Uh, of water that's actually fresh. And over three quarters of that uh, is, is at the two poles, the North and the South Pole. And, and a large portion of the other quarter of, of drinkable water is actually trapped underground called fossil water. And so if you're doing math and you're quick on math, that means only 0.36% of the world's water is available in drinkable form on the Earth's surface for man. And that's found in rivers, lakes, and swamps. Yes, swamps. And so um, basically, because pollution's rapidly on the rise, that's even reducing that tiny amount. Now, I happen to love drinking water. I have a a water bottle here um, that I constantly am filling up. Uh, It's a little bit slim. I was going to update my my water bottle game, and I was thinking of maybe going this route, having a little... This wouldn't be too awkward to carry to the job site. You know, hey, guys, how's it going? I got my extra big gulp today. You know... uh, I love drinking water, and apparently there's all, I mean, I can't believe this, there's all sorts of different types of, of water. Did you realize that? I thought it was just H2O, but apparently there's a lot more that goes into it. There's, there's purified water, which, which is like what you'd buy at the store, uh, Aquafina, Dasani, or Publix, okay? There's mineral water, and if you're trying to explain that to kids, you just say, hey kids, this is water where we put rocks in it, okay? That, that, that's mineral water. We put minerals into them. There's distilled water where we take all the minerals out of the water. Uh, Then there's spring water, which sounds a lot like we scooped water out of a puddle, right? Doesn't it? It's just spring. Just do the math in your head. That's what it is. And so uh, then there's there's tap water, which is about as safe to drink as puddle water. (laughs) It's very dangerous to drink. And so for that reason, I commend drinking um, filtered water. And so um, I was at Starbucks the other day, and I actually asked the barista accidentally, right, this is a thing you don't do at Starbucks. I asked them for, hey, can I have some tap water? And the guy looks at me, he's like, ugh, we don't serve tap water, and, and kind of get angry with me. I was like, well, okay, uh, do you have anything that's for free that is water-ish? And, uh, and <laughs> he says, well, we serve triple filter, double osmosis, vegan, free-range, organic water. And I was like, okay, um, yeah, um, I thought that's what I said, but uh, anyway, I'll take some of that. Uh, You and I, we don't have a problem understanding having full access to water. We we don't have that issue. But so for a moment, what I want you to do is just imagine with me a world that's having insatiable thirst, but there's no water supply that hasn't been tainted. 
that hasn't been corrupted, that hasn't uh, been uh, mixed in with, where it's impure, where you take a sip and it could harm you. Okay? And I want to suggest to you that we actually are living in that world today. Every one of us here, no matter how young you are, how old you are, how rich, how poor, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're a lefty, whether you're a righty, whether you're a Yankees fan or a Christian, okay? <laughs> whether you're from the South and you put sugar on your grits or you're from the North and you put salt on your grits, why would you do that? It doesn't matter if you're an urban dweller, a suburbanite, or you live in the sticks. All of us, no matter where we come from, where we're going, we all have the same thing in common, and that's a deep longing, an insatiable thirst. And yet, listen, the water supply that we've been scooping into, that we've all been running to, it's tainted. Now, before you go buy stock in Pellegrino or Brita water filters, I hope you understand I'm speaking spiritually, spiritually. We are all thirsting for something that will satisfy us spiritually, and yet there's no water supply in all of creation that will satisfy now, in the text we're going to study today, we're going to see that Jesus alone quenches our ultimate thirst. Amen? And we're going to see that Jesus will interact with a woman, and this woman, as much as she wants to, she's got a lot of barriers in her way. And we're going to see Jesus moving beyond these barriers uh, to reach her. And so we have a lot of text to study and unpack today. And so to do this chapter, Expositional Justice... That is a thing, okay? To do an expositional justice, we need to move a little bit fast. So if you're taking note, and I really hope you are, here's the outline that we're going to go through today. We're going to see in verses 1 through 8 a physical barrier. There's a physical barrier keeping this woman from salvation. But then we're going to see in verses 9 through 12 a racial barrier, and we're going to go there today, a racial barrier. Verses 13 through 18, there's of course, a spiritual barrier, and we need to be reminded, church, wherever we're going, there's always a spiritual barrier uh, as Christians. Then we're going to see in verses 19 through 24 a doctrinal barrier, which is less of a barrier, I think, uh, but it's still there. And then verses 25 through 30, a social barrier. With that as our template, that's where we're going. Hopefully you're good. Look at the first uh, verse, a physical barrier, verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll make comments on it. Verse 1 says, Therefore, reading from the New King James, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. All right. Now, this spot, if you're taking note, was the spot at the foot of Mount Gerizim, or Gerizim that had a rich cultural history. A lot went down in this exact spot. And, and here he comes to a well that is identified as Joseph's well. If you were to go there today, um, there's a lot of activity there, but it's about 75 feet deep. Um, and it's actually supplied by underground water sources. So it's, it's a true well. It's not a man-made well. It's a true well uh, tapped into. And so women would go to the well very early in the morning, or they'd go later in the day at sunset. And so notice that Jesus uh, is coming, what does it say in verse 6? When was he there? What hour was he there? Yell it out for me, church. 
is the sixth hour. That's not 6 a.m. They started their day at 6 a.m., so do the math with me. That would be noon. Yeah, 12, 12 p.m. noon, okay? And so, um, like being in Florida, you did your best to avoid being out in the middle of the day, uh, like at noon, so you don't melt, okay? So here it is. It's the middle of the day. Jesus is tired. He sits down by the well. Now, I love that. I love that because we see the humanity of Jesus, that though he was God, he was still fully human, not some type of superhero pretending to be human. Jesus actually thirsted, okay? And so here he is. Um, He's thirsting, uh, and and that's a part of our uh, humanity, of getting hungry, getting thirsty. Uh, We get thirsty uh, on the daily, multiple times a day. We get hungry. Some of you guys get hangry, right? Don't miss a meal (laughs) unless you're fasting, right? So uh, who on earth is going to be at the well at noon? Only people who were the social outcasts of the day, the, the misfits, the miscreants, the people who were completely ostracized from society, those are the ones that came at noon. And so what we're about to meet is a, uh, we're about to meet a woman with a very checkered past. You've heard of the good Samaritan. We're about to be introduced to the bad Samaritan in this verse, okay? And so um, this uh, situation uh, that Jesus is about to um, interact with this woman uh, would not have been a normative thing. The physical barrier that's taking place is that Jesus has gone to do ministry in Judea. Galilee's up north, Judea's to the south, and right in the middle is Samaria. And the Jews would go around Samaria. They would go across the Jordan, they would go up through Perea, and they would take an extra two or three days just to avoid Samaria. That part of town, we're going to stay away from. We don't like those people. We're going to go around, and we'll see why in a minute. But this woman has a huge physical barrier keeping her from Jesus. But what we're going to see is that Jesus goes to meet this woman where she's at. He did the same thing in John chapter 3. But these are two very different scenarios. See, in John chapter 3, he's speaking to a man. Here he's speaking to a woman. In John chapter 3, we have a happily married man. Here we're going to meet a woman who's been married five times, and she's just given up on marriage. Uh, We see with Nicodemus a man who's a respected leader in the community. But with this woman, we're going to find out she's been ostracized from her community. One is in the cool of night, the other's in the thick heat of the day. And both of these people have an amazing experience with Jesus. And so let's look now at verse 9 through 12 and see the racial barrier. Verse 9 says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then John gives us this insight, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you've got an opportunity to highlight that, underline it, circle it, please do that. Living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Okay, so if you're uh, keeping track with me, to understand this passage, we have to do a little bit of background on the Samaritans, okay? So back in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive. They were taken captive by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were wicked. Um, We learned about them in our um, study of uh, Jonah and Nahum. 
And so the, the wicked Assyrians settled that land after taking many of them captive. They, they repopulated the land uh, from other people of other countries. And so the remaining Israelites are kind of looking around. They begin to intermarry with all of these various uh, people, these outsiders. And these outside uh, non-Jewish people bring with them all of their uh, foreign gods. And what Israel does is they start combining this God with Yahweh. They begin to put them together. And so what ends up happening is what's called syncretism. When you bring the true God with false gods, and instead of uh, having like a separation, you blend them together. Okay? And syncretism is very dangerous on the, on the mission field. It's blending an existing religious element with Christianity. So what happens is not Christianity in the final result, uh, but Christ plus something. And by the way, anything that's Christ plus something is not Christianity, folks. Okay? And so very dangerous, right? When you put fruit in the blender to make a smoothie, and then you get the horrible idea of throwing a banana in there, no matter how much fruit you've put in the blender, it tastes like banana after that, no matter what you do. And, and, and then you bring you know, a banana to lunch. All of your lunch tastes like and smells like banana. They don't make banana air fresheners. I found this out. They don't make those, okay? And so when you blend an existing religion with Christianity, you don't get Christianity. You get something awful, okay? And so after the Babylonian exile in 539 B.C., when the exiles get back to Israel, what they came back to was a religious and political group of people that was actually against them, this group of people, the Samaritans. They traced their lineage, though, all the way back to Manasseh and Ephraim who were sons of Joseph. Remember, he was that beloved son of Jacob, the coat. Remember his whole story in Genesis? And so Samaritans would say, yeah, we're part of Jacob, but they'd mixed in with the other people. And so they would look at their, uh, their uh, Torah and they would not follow the entire Old Testament. They would only follow um, the first five books of the Bible. They wouldn't look at all of the brevity, all of the Old Testament. And so when Nehemiah and Ezra were rebuilding Jerusalem, the Samaritans actually opposed Nehemiah. They were against it. Uh, the center of Samaritan worship was not the temple in Jerusalem, uh, but a rival temple on the mountain, Mount Gerizim, where they simultaneously worshiped Jehovah, but then they also had an altar set up for Zeus. That's how these guys rolled. And so for these reasons, these are the reasons, the Jews hated the Samaritans. It's a thing. They hated them. Now, hate is not a popular word today. The Jews hated, they rejected, they utterly despised the Samaritans. This is not just a playful little banter between two rivals like Gators and Seminoles, okay? I really don't know how there's even a rivalry because one of those teams is clearly dominant, all right? And you can guess which one it is. Half of you would say one or the other. Okay, this, this is not that. This is not just like playful banter, like a house divided, one of us is a Bama fan. It's not like that. Okay, this is absolute hatred. The worst insult that a Jew could use uh, to call someone a name was Samaritan. And it's unbelievable. In John chapter 8, look at this. In John 8, 48, the hostile Pharisees said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? We opened up with a similar passage where they said, oh yeah, yeah, you have a demon. Well, they also called him a Samaritan. That would have been worse. To call Jesus is worse than saying you have a demon. There's a widely used Jewish proverb that said this, a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. The Jews actually didn't call Samaritans a nation. Many of them called them a herd of, of people, a herd. Bad blood indeed, okay? But look at verse four, I love this. Look at verse four, going back a little bit. 
It says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. This literally in the Greek reads this way. He must needs go through Samaria. He must needs go. I like that. Uh, Commentator James Smith says, there was a must needs for every word Christ spoke and for every act that he did. Those Jews which, quote, had no dealings with the Samaritans usually avoided going through Samaria when journeying from Judea to Galilee. But Christ's love for sinners constrained him to go that way, 2 Corinthians 5.14. He lived not to please himself, but to seek and to save the lost. In this way, he has left us an example that we should follow his steps. So I want you to picture with me the heat of the day. It's noon. This woman is on her way to draw water. And she encounters a person she never would have expected. Here's a Jew, not just a Jew, a Jewish man, not just a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi. Now, Jews don't associate with Samaritans, but by tradition, rabbis don't even speak to women in public, not even their wives. So if you're a rabbi and you're walking in public, your wife comes up, hi, honey. It's kind of like, you know, and you just keep walking. You give her the old, you give her the hand. That's what we did in the 80s. We give you the hand, right? Or maybe it's the 90s. I'm giving you the hand. And, and, and so this is, this is a sinful woman. This is a Samaritan woman. This isn't just untraditional and common. This is beyond radical. This is like revolutionary. And notice that Jesus asks her for a drink. And that makes sense because the disciples are gone. And they brought all the supplies into town with them. He has no way to draw water out, no water pot. And so this woman misunderstands when he says, hey, uh, can I have a drink, please? And uh, then she says, well, you have nothing to draw with. And so she's not understanding what Jesus is speaking about here. And so um, she's just completely um, confused. And so she says in verse 12, are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? She has no idea. Yes, he is greater than your, our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself. Uh, so you're, you're able to give me living water? She's not understanding the connection here. She's thinking he's talking about, hey, I've got a glass for you. When you take a sip of this, you'll never have to drink any more water. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if you could have one last meal and never gain weight again? Wouldn't that be awesome? I'm just going to have one more meal. I'm going to Burns Steakhouse, and I never, after that, have to eat another meal again. I'm just going to stay in this perpetual state of fitness. This is great, right, where you, where you don't have to eat a cupcake and then suddenly see it literally added to your stomach. Wouldn't that be awesome? She's thinking, well, yeah, I'll take a, I'd like that living water. Let me take a sip of that, and then I never have to drink another drink of water. She's not getting it. Nicodemus didn't understand it. Jesus said, you must be born again. Uh, he's going, wait, how's that possible as a grown man? So they're not understanding it. Jesus is talking about water welling up from within. That's a rich Old Testament prophetic image. If you're taking note, it's not going to be on the screen. Jeremiah 2.13 describes God himself as the fountain of living water, Jeremiah 2.13. Zechariah 14, 8 and 9, describe uh, living water flowing from Jerusalem. So this Old Testament picture of living water is one of peace and satisfaction that only God himself can bring. Here's a quote for you. While the Old Testament applies this image to the kingdom of God as a whole, Jesus here applies it to the individual believer. Jesus says that the living water he offers wells up from within. This means that God meets our deepest longings for significance and purpose and that he meets them from within. There's a racial barrier. This woman would never be in the temple. She'd never be in that scenario where she'd hear a rabbi speak the oracles of God. 
And yet Jesus breaks through that racial barrier. Look at this third section, a spiritual barrier. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, Jesus, we'll read to verse 15. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Now, you want to know with me, Jesus doesn't just meet her immediate need only, okay? but he appeals to her greater need. Okay, do you follow me? He meets the immediate need, but he appeals to the greater need. Okay? We can work hard at, at helping children in third world countries have backpacks or desks uh, to meet an immediate need for comfort, but what is the greater need? Right? What's the greater need? Uh, we, can, uh, we can and we do help our community with, with orphans, with foster children, um, with people considering an abortion and having kind of health care and, and options, and, and we help people in recovery uh, from drugs and alcohol, but those are not the greatest needs. Those are needs, but those are not the greatest needs. Uh, so though we meet an immediate need, we will, as a church, never stop preaching the gospel. We will never stop reaching our community with the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus in his word. We'll never stop doing that. We're never gonna go social gospel route, ever. We're never gonna go the route where we're just here to meet the physical need and we're not gonna talk about Jesus, you know, ask me a question. No, we will always meet the immediate and look for the greater need. And so Jesus appeals to the greater need. And what is her response? I want that. Sign me up. I want that water. John Corson says this, awesome quote, nothing material will ever satiate or satisfy the thirst of the soul. When believers get thirsty, sometimes, sometimes it's because they've drifted back to the old watering holes. They've pulled away from the word, from ministry, from the things of the kingdom, and they end up dry as bones, as miserable as fish out of water. Oh, Pastor John. Now, I love what Jesus does here. In, in, in appealing to her greatest need, he first needs to bring conviction and truth. See, there's a spiritual barrier here. As much as she wants that living water, there's something in the way of that. There's a barrier, there's an obstacle. And so Jesus brings conviction and truth to that barrier. Okay? He, what, does he, what does he do? He speaks to a morally questionable situation she's in. She's sinning, and he speaks directly to the sin and gently and tactfully drops a truth bomb in her lap. He's like, here you go. I'm going to drop this in your lap. I'm going to ask you a little question, so, uh, or I'm going to make this little statement. Look at verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband, and come here. She's right there at the door. I want that, I want that living water. Let me have it. He doesn't say, okay, great. Let's, let's talk about who I am. No, first he has to address the issue. So he says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman, verse 17, answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. <laughs> so I love that Jesus does this. He's like, hey, go call your husband. She goes, oh, I'm not married, actually. He goes, yeah, I know. You've had five marriages, and now you're shacked up with the guy. You're living with the guy. I know that you're, you're not married currently. And you can just see her. <laughs> can you see with me her eyes widening? Who is this guy? How does he know? How? How did he, I mean, is he at the courthouse keeping track of each marriage that I, is my reputation that bad that it's all, it's reached Judea or Galilee? Oh my goodness. How does he know this? How does he know I'm living with someone? I'm trying to keep that under wraps. That's a secret sin. I don't want anyone to know about that. 
How does he know? Jesus, listen, speaks directly to the sinful condition of her heart. The most uh, uh, important barrier, or the greatest, the worst barrier, you could say, between a man and God is our sin. That we must not allow sin to separate us from God. Now, what happens when someone starts speaking to you, God speaks to you through his word, and you start feeling conviction about a particular sin? Listen, condemnation is feeling just bad and no reason. Conviction is when God points his finger by his spirit through his word on a particular area, and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, I need to repent. I need to confess that. Lord, forgive me. I'm turning from that. Condemnation is just you can feel foggy and just bad about yourself. No, conviction is this is what you don't, you've sinned, and you need to name it, and you need to confess it and repent, turn from it. And so what happens when that happens, when you start getting convicted about sin? When someone's talking to you and they start saying, hey, bro, and they start pointing, here's what happens. You and I may be tempted to deflect the attention away from that spotlight, right? There's that in Lord of the Rings, the eye is kind of on you, right? And you know it's on, it's on me. And so what do we do? We like to deflect the attention off of us and our sin. And we bring up in those moments a theological question. We bring up a doctrinal issue and we start a debate so that the focus is now on this little thing and not on me. So rather than dealing with our sinful state, we conjure up doctrinal or religious questions that have nothing to do with our sinful condition and our need for saving, right? Uh, maybe you've talked to someone. Maybe it's not you. Maybe you've talked to someone and you're sharing the gospel and they go, well, wait, 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 wait. Well, I, I understand what you're saying. Like, I'm a sinner. But what about the heathen in Africa? What about the pygmies? Don't they live in pygmy land? Well, what do we do with those people? How did they come to faith? How can a good God allow suffering uh, and evil? Well, what about creation and evolution? You guys have a, all, the, all these these issues between creation and evolution. Uh, what about baptism? Should I be sprinkled or should I be immersed? <clears throat> immersed. Uh, what about wine or grape juice? What do we use in communion? Where do babies go when they die? Uh, shouldn't we worship on Saturday? Don't you pronounce his name Yeshua and not Jesus? So often people will get the focus off of their sin and make it the side controversial theological question. I call that a doctrinal barrier, a doctrinal barrier. What was this woman's doctrinal barrier? Let's look at it, verses 19 through 24. The woman said to him, as he's called out her sin, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, speaking of the Samaritans. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither uh, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But, verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's a lot we can do with just that section of Scripture uh, Micah and I could spend probably a three-hour Facebook Live on worshiping in spirit and in truth. We're not going to have time to do that justice today. But church, the most important question about worship is not how we worship, like with a choir or with a band. The most important question about worship is not when we worship, like on Saturday or on Sunday or on every day. The most important question about worship is not where like this woman asked, do we worship on the mountain or in the temple or at the YMCA or at church or at home or in the car? The most important question, listen, is who 
Who are we worshiping? And are we the worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth? And so this woman is having a kind of a fight club with Jesus. And the topic is, where should I worship? But that's the wrong question. It's not where, it's who. Amen? It's not where we worship. It's not why we worship. It's not how, it's who we worship. Jesus said the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Some people say, I don't like seeker-sensitive churches. I don't like, that's a seeker church. I would say, yeah, I don't like that term either. But God's a seeker. According to this verse, God is the one who's seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. God's the initiator. We are the responders. So look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, the reason she probably said that is he said, you worship what you don't know. In other words, you're ignorant. In the best sense of the word. Like, you're, you're ignorant. You don't understand. You're worshiping out of ignorance. Uh, but we Jews understand what we worship. And so I think that's why she's saying, well, well, yeah, here's what I do know. I know that Messiah will explain this to me. And notice what Jesus says in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, the way the Greek is constructed it reads basically, the one who speaks to you, I am, or I am. It doesn't say I am he. Jesus is saying, I am. This is one of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. We're going to look through those as we continue our study this year. And so Jesus says, yeah, I'm the Messiah. You're looking for answers. They're found in me. I am the one who has uh, the answer. Now, up to this point, we've got a physical barrier, we've got a racial barrier, we've got a spiritual barrier, but there's, there's another barrier, a doctrinal barrier, there's another one. This is still a barrier. So look at verse um, uh, 25 uh, through 30. And, th- and this is a social barrier. And, th- and this may not seem as important, uh, but now that this woman has understand, understood Jesus is the Messiah, now I get it, okay, I got it. Now, listen, she has a huge choice to make. What do I do with that? Seeing the 12 disciples edging closer to the well, she has a a moment right here to decide. She can either carry her filled water pot, you know, back to the town and kind of say, okay, I'm good. Thank you for that insight. I appreciate that argument. I like it into theology. And she could have walked back and and just stayed there. She could have done that. That was certainly an option. Uh, Nice chat, Rabbi. Stay on the fringe of society and forever eternally be separated from God. Or she could take this incredible news that she's just heard and bring it to the city and make an impact. But there is a social barrier that she's got to push through. So look at uh, verse uh, 25, uh, 27 rather. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Okay, so again, that backstory, rabbis didn't speak with women. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Wow, I love this. Did you catch that? She drops her water pot. She leaves it there and she beelines it for the village. And she goes up to the men. All right, (laughs) We know this woman's backstory. We know her reputation. She knows her reputation. Everybody knows her reputation. And so she starts going up to the men of the city and she goes up, tugs on this guy's robe. Hey, right, if you're one of the men and you know her reputation, you're like, hey, 
how's it going? Right? You're backing off, like, let's put a little distance here, ma'am. And you're trying to stay away. And so what she says, as a promiscuous woman, she knows her past. She looks, she looks beyond the, the fear of her fellow man who would look at her and kind of stay away. And she moves beyond that. And she says, listen, all this time, I have foolishly been looking uh, for a man, little M. Uh, but I want you to come see a real man, big M. I want you to see the Messiah. And he knows the intimate parts of my life that no other man has bothered to find out. I love it. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Christ? Now, in studying this, there's a cool progression here, church. I want you to see this on the screen. This is really awesome. This is how she, in this section, starts to understand who Jesus is. Notice this. First, she calls him a Jew in verse 9. Then it gets a little more, that's almost like a derogatory, like, you Jews. How are you as a Jew asking me? Then it gets a little more respectful. Hey, okay, sir. Verse 11. Then she makes the statement, are you greater than Jacob? I would say, yeah, he is. So she makes that statement. Then she mentions that he's a prophet in verse 19. And then Messiah in 25. And here, could this be the Christ? See the progression? It gets better and better. She's one step at a time beginning to see who Jesus is. Many of you, that was your discipleship. It was beginning with, okay, who is this, this person? What is church about? And I'm just gonna kind of come and scope it out. And the more you grow, the more you understand who you're serving, who Jesus is. She came to the well that morning thirsty, bearing her water pot. And she left that afternoon more satisfied than she had ever been before. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. Earlier, Jesus turned tepid water into the most festive of wines. He now takes the emptiest of lives and fills it full. Love that. See, as we open this morning, there's a deep longing in the human heart for something to quench its thirst, something to satisfy it. And so what we do is we run to various springs in a vain attempt to draw water from what are broken cisterns. Zane Hodges says, love, success, wealth, fame, these were but a few of the countless springs at which men had stooped to drink only to rise from them to find that they offered no lasting inward satisfaction, no enduring personal fulfillment. See, that is because what we ultimately long for is only found in Jesus. What this woman longed for, church, was not a sexual experience, but for the fulfillment of being loved and cherished and valued. See, she was seeking to find that in a relationship. And a little bit into each one of her marriages, she found it wasn't there. Uh, she was stuck in that marriage singing the same chorus but a different song. She was at the different restaurant ordering the same dish and constantly leaving this, this man and this man and this man in pursuit of an, another man. Not another man. She was seeking fulfillment, to be loved, to be cherished, to be valued. And listen, dear son or daughter, please don't be distracted this morning. That is only fulfilled in knowing Jesus. The psalmist said it best in Psalm 42 where he said, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Later he says, when can I go and meet with God? Does that describe you? Leave that on the screen. Does that describe you in your relationship with Jesus today? Can I bring a hammer of conviction? If that doesn't describe your thirst for Jesus, maybe it describes your panting after something else. There's something that you're thirsting for. There's something you're panting after that you're longing for. I, I get the analogy of that if I replace the Lord with maybe a new Marvel movie 
Oh my gosh, the new movie's coming out. We're going to be there on opening night. We're going to be there the day before we're, it's coming out. And we're going to be there and we're staying after all the credits to see the last scene because it's going to be amazing. And I can't wait for that new movie to come out. Uh, maybe your favorite store is opening a new location. I can't wait till it opens. I'm going to be there. I'm going there. Uh, maybe you find out season three is finally on Netflix. I can't wait. I'm going to stay and binge all night long. I'm going for it. This is it. Maybe it's Friday and the weekend's only a few hours away and you know it's coming and you're like, I am, you're literally drooling for the weekend. It's happening. Uh, I used to work at Apple. Maybe it's a new product that's coming out and I saw people in line. There was a crazed look of panting. That verse describes people with new Apple products. Uh, and maybe the grandparents have the kids for the weekend and you're panting. I can't wait for the grandparents. Whatever it is, we all, it's okay. That's the human condition. I've named some of these that have to do with me. Right? I don't know what may, it may be for you, but does our soul pant for God the way it pants after those temporal and fading things? That's conviction on all of us, gang. This morning, like the woman at the well, we just need to drink. We need to drink. Drink deeply of Jesus. Spurgeon said, what does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there's no better representation of faith and all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive to take in the refreshing draught, and that is all. A man's face may be unwashed, but yet he can drink. He may be a very unworthy character, but yet a draught of water will remove his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkably easy thing, it is even more simple than eating. See, this thirsty and desperate woman, she leaves her water pot, she goes back into the town to share the story about the man she had just met. And in a sense, the entire town hears her testimony. I want to encourage you this week to go and start uh, in verse, uh, where did we leave off? We left off uh, in verse 30. I want to encourage you to read that short section, 31 uh, through uh, 42 uh, this week. Read that section and see what the result of that is, what happens when Jesus impacts this woman and then impacts the town. She is willing to not be the center of attention for gossip anymore, but be the center of attention so that the testimony of Jesus would shine through her life. I love what Ken Boa said. He said, the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit, the living water, is to come through us and become contagious to others where we actually point people to that water and manifest the presence and power of the Spirit of God in our arenas of influence. We are to be a part of that process, having a purpose, being on a trajectory of growth in our faith, our trust, our surrender, and our obedience so that God can draw us to himself. I want to give us two points of application. So if you're taking note, please jot these down. Two things that we can apply this text to our life, and then we'll close and have a pastor's challenge for us this week, okay? Two points of application. Number one, what is your water pot? What is your water pot? See, the water pot is the vessel that I use to draw water out with. And I take this and I carry it, and this is where I go. I bring this with me so that this becomes the catalyst through which I use to get the source, right? Does that make sense? I use this as some type of an object to get me to that, what I think is refreshment. And I love that the Samaritan woman leaves her water pot. She dumps it because she's found true living water. Is there something, listen to me very carefully, is there something that you use that's your water pot? Maybe it's a device, maybe it's an item that you use to seek out what is stagnant and vacuous in this world, believing, well, this will this time bring fulfillment. For some men, listen, your water pot is your phone or your computer. 
and you think that by browsing on it, I'll find fulfillment in pornography, even though you know that every time you've gone to tap that well, it has, it's come up dry. It's leaving you empty and unsatisfied. For others this morning, maybe it's an app. Maybe it's a website where you thought, I'm going to meet someone. I'm going to connect with someone in a relationship through this app. And what you found is, you know what? I can only find in Jesus uh, what fulfills my emotional and spiritual needs. What is your water pot? Is, is it your, your boat? Is it your home? Maybe it's your car. Is there a person that represents a water pot where you go, I'm gonna plumb the depths of this person to fulfill something in me. I'm longing for love and peace. This person will bring that. Listen, whatever your water pot is today, it's time like the Samaritan woman to just leave it and find living water in Jesus. Second application point, if you're taking note, is who is your Samaria? Who's your Samaria? See, Samaria was the place the Jews wanted to avoid because of racial disagreement and discrimination. Uh, we don't want to deal with Samaria. Like God will, will condemn them or reach them, but we don't have anything to do with them. But here's what we're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is Jesus. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Here's where it's at. You guys read the rest out loud. Read the rest of the verse for me. All right, awesome. So the Jews hearing that, the disciples would have been like, yeah, Jerusalem, we love that place. We love our city. We're going to reach our, we have a heart for our city. Hashtag, we love this city, whatever it is. We're like, we're going to reach Jerusalem. Oh, Judea, yeah, the countryside. We absolutely love this region, southwest Florida. Let's reach it for Jesus, absolutely. Oh, the ends of the earth, Lord, we are willing to go to the ends of the earth. We will go to the uttermost parts of the earth. We'll bring a Bible translation. We'll do cross-cultural missions. We are, we are there to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, hang on, hang on, guys. I did mention one more place, Samaria. Are you willing to go to Samaria? The church may have said, well, you know what? Those guys are beyond God's love. You know, um, we need to take the extra time and energy and avoid the Samaritans. But no, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses there. I love them. I died so that they would hear the gospel. Go to Samaria. Church, who is your Samaria? Maybe it's a specific person in your family. Maybe it's a people group. Maybe it's a race of people that you discriminate against and that you avoid. Listen, that's sin. We need to ask the Spirit of God to search our heart and convict us and challenge us so that we can be a witness to them. You see, the text tells us that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. He must needs go. And this wasn't a matter of convenience. Listen, it was a matter of compulsion. A church, there's people in our lives that need the gospel. And whether we go to them is not a matter of convenience. It's a matter of compulsion. Who is your Samaria? I'm going to invite the band to come forward and close us in a very appropriate song to this text. But go ahead and close your Bibles. I don't want you to be distracted right now. Go ahead and close them. Get settled. lest we miss the whole purpose of the text this morning. We need to know something very, very important. Something very tragic. Let me bring this home. This is the purpose of this text, church. You and I are the Samaritan woman. You and I are this woman. We are this woman. You and I are the Gentile outcast. See, because of our sin, we've been ostracized. We've been cast out. 
because of our guilt and our shame. We too are going back to a broken cistern to draw water and find that it just keeps coming up empty. This woman here was stuck behind walls of distance, walls of race, walls of gender, sexual promiscuity, and social ostracizing. No hope of ever talking to a safe man, let alone a Jewish rabbi, let alone the Messiah. And yet the Messiah went out of his way to meet her right where she was at. And listen, he has done the same for you and for me. Jesus moved beyond the physical barrier of our humanity and he put on human flesh to come and to bring us living water that our soul would no longer thirst but be fully satisfied. Not only that, but Jesus, he broke through the spiritual barrier that said the soul who sins must die. And he took our sin upon himself. He became the mediator and the great high priest as well as the lamb sacrifice. He laid down his life as a propitiation for our sin. Jesus, even today, disrupts any racial or cultural barriers this morning that may tell you that, well, you're a part of people that God favors or that God loves. Listen, there's no superior race more worthy of the love of Christ. There's one race, the human race, and of the human race, the Bible says that there is no one righteous. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. And God shows his love for us in that while we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. No doctrinal barrier that you put up in your mind today will restrict you, will stand in the way of Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Your theological question may seem impossible to answer, but have you brought it to Jesus? He is the answer. Are you thirsty this morning? Have you come to Jesus to drink of living water? See, you and I are the Samaritan woman, desperate, outcast, alone, and Jesus comes, breaking through every barrier, breaking through what we put up in our minds. And he says, I'm here to save, to offer you true satisfaction. As we close today, I just have a pastor's challenge for us as a church. And here it is, very simply on the screen. Go find a well and bring Jesus with you. Is there a place where despondent people, outcast Samaritans are hanging out? Where they're looking for fulfillment or love or attention or answers? Listen, find that well and bring Jesus with you. Amen? Father, we pray that you would allow us to look to Jesus, that our, our eyes would be fixed on him today, that we, as we're about to sing, would cling to Christ. Where else can we turn? You have the words of eternal life. We come to you this morning admitting our deep spiritual thirst and hunger and know that you alone can fulfill that. You alone quench that thirst. And so Holy Spirit, as we learn later in John 7, Holy Spirit, would you well up within us uh, that that well, that spring of living water that comes only by your spirit, that comes through a relationship with Jesus, saved by grace alone. We thank you for what you are doing in this church, and I pray that you would use us to find a well and to bring Jesus with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Calvary Chapel meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. Tune in next week as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and learn who Jesus is.